Welcome to the Digital Euro Podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Today, we would like to start this webinar about digital currencies in Asia, lessons for Europe, jointly organized by the Digital Euro Association and the German Institute for Japanese Studies. My name is Markus Heckel, and I'm principal economist at the DIJ. The DIJ is part of the Max Weber Foundation, and it's funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. Today, we are very much honored to welcome four distinguished panelists from Europe and Japan. And please allow me to introduce the three panelists of the first section of today's webinar. So first we have Masaki Besho. He is uh, head of the FinTech Center and uh, Payment and Settlement Systems Department of the Bank of Japan. And his presentation is about the Bank of Japan's works on a general purpose central bank digital currency. Second, we are pleased to welcome Mr. Richard Turin. He's the best-selling author of Cashless, China's digital currency revolution, and one of the top 100 global fintech influencers. He's a leading media commentator in China's digital yuan. His presentation will be on why China's uh, eCNY app is topping the charts. And last but not least, we welcome Hiromi Yamaoka. He's a member of the board of the Future Corporation and he also acts as the chairperson of the Digital Currency Forum in Japan. Previously, he has worked as a director general of the markets department, as well as the payment and settlement systems department of the Bank of Japan. And the topic of his speech is digital currency and the future of money. The procedure today is that we have the three presentation, which will be followed by a panel discussion. And after the panel discussion, we have a Q&A session where you, the audience, can ask questions. Uh, for the question, please use the Slido function. Um, so you, uh, there's a QR code, and uh, you are also able to rate the question by the others. So without further ado, uh, let's get started. And uh, please, Masaki, could you be so kind to, to start first? OK, uh, thank you for your introduction, Marcus. Uh, I'll start briefly uh, explaining the Bank of Japan's works on general purpose CBDC. I think most of the audience are already familiar with this, but first of all, I would like to briefly touch upon what is CBDC. CBDC is defined by four elements. First, it is digital. Second, it is direct reliability of a central bank. Third, it's denominated in the fiat currency of the issuing jurisdiction. And finally, it is different from central bank deposits, which have already been provided to financial institutions' digital form. And there are two variants of CBDCs, general purpose CBDC and wholesale CBDC. Today, I'll focus on general purpose CBDC. First of all, we are yet to decide to issue CBDC. However, we consider it important to prepare thoroughly to respond to possible changes in circumstances. Therefore, we carry out experiments and deepen our exploration on CBDC's possible institutional arrangements. 
coordinating with domestic and international stakeholders. Also, we are not aiming to replace cash by CBDC. We are still committed to continue supplying cash as long as there is a public demand. If we are to issue a CBDC in Japan, we expect three functions and laws. First, a CBDC will complement cash. As this chart shows, in Japan, banknote issuance amounts to over 20% of its nominal GDP, which stands out in the world. This is because cash is safe and convenient in Japan. Banknotes are maintained clean. There are almost no counterfeit. You can find a number of ATMs across the country. That said, the situation might change. For example, declining population, in particular in rural areas, may place upward pressure on cash upward cost pressure on cash distribution. Therefore, it might be the case that access to cash becomes difficult in some regions in the future. Secondly, CBDC could support private payment services. As this chart shows, in Japan, a number of private service providers, banks, as well as non-banks, provide a range of payment services. This is of itself not bad. People have a number of choices. However, their interoperability, in particular, the interoperability between bank deposits and non-bank platform are, is limited. If interoperability is enhanced, it will be more convenient for consumers and the efficiency of overall payment system would improve with network effects. CBDC could contribute to improve compatibility among a range of private monies. Thirdly, we expect CBDC to promote innovations on this point, recently, central banks have been discussing about the implications of platformers entry to retail payment services. While platformers have potential to serve consumers convenient services at low cost or even at no cost, the business model of platformers could self-reinforce monopoly or oligopoly. We call it DNA, date network, activity loop. Platforms offering a range of services can collect more consumer data as they expand scope and scale of their services. This will accelerate the quality of their data utilization leverage on network effects. This data utilization then pushes up their revenues, which enables them further, further investments and expansion of their businesses. CBDC, which could be a basis for a range of entrepreneurs to provide noble services, could promote innovation while maintaining the competition in the retail payment market. If we are to issue a CBDC, we will maintain the two-tiered system of a central bank and the private sector this model is similar to the current distribution model of cash. And also, if we are to issue a CBDC, 
we think it would need to have five features. The uh, universal access, security, resilience, instant payment capability, and finally, interoperability. The first four features correspond to the features of cache. That said, there are trade-offs between some of these features, and we should strike a right balance. Also, it might be difficult to fully implement all of these features from the outset. In particular, I think it might be appropriate to implement universal access and resilience step by step. While offline payment is closely related with universal access and resilience, there remain a number of challenges to implement it. Therefore, so long as effective access to cash is in place, it might make sense for a central bank to provide public money with such features relying on cash. On technological aspects of CBDC, we have been carrying out experiments. We have been carrying out POC proof of concept phase one to test basic functions of CBDC, which is expected to be finalized soon at the end of this month. Immediately after that, we'll proceed to the phase two, where we'll test some additional functions. Based on the POC, and if we judge it necessary to step things further, we'll consider a pilot program, which involves intermediaries, retailers, and consumers. In the phase one of the POC, we have been comparing three different ledger models. On the ledger management structure, these models cover both hybrid and intermediate models. And also on the monetary data structure, we cover both account-based and token-based model. In tandem with these technical explorations, we are working on possible institutional arrangements. They include allocation of roles and responsibility between the central bank and the private sector, and safeguard to maintain financial stability and privacy protection, and finally, technical standards. The keyword of our CBDC consideration or exploration is coexistence. We have two variants of coexistence in mind. The first one is horizontal coexistence, which means compatibility with other means of payments. Compatibility is a precondition for horizontal coexistence. And as I mentioned, it could improve interoperability of various forms of money. At the same time, bank deposits, which is one form of such diverse money, have been playing an important role in credit creation, in particular in Japan. Since CBDC does not have credit creation function, it should be carefully designed so as not to impair this function. Possible safeguards to mitigate flows from bank deposits to CBDC could include, for example, quantitative measures such as caps for holdings or transactions, as well as price measures such as fees and or remunerations. Another coexistence I'd like to touch upon is vertical coexistence, 
which means development of the CBDC ecosystem through involvement of diverse players. While CBDC itself is expected to be a prime barrier product, we would like to give diverse players opportunities to provide their innovative services on top of the plane barrier product. I'm sure such allocation of works is critical to ensure efficiency and also sustainability of the CBDC ecosystem. To conclude my presentation, I would like to highlight one point. We expect the CBDC to contribute to the overall efficiency and safety of the payment landscape. And in doing that, we should be forward-looking. When we evaluate pros and cons of CBDC introduction, we should look at the future rather than the past or even today. I'll stop here. Thank you for your attention. Yeah, thank you very much, Masaki. And now, uh, Richard, it will be your turn. So please share your slides. Hello, I'm ready to go. Can you hear me? Yes, very good. Can, can you see me? That's the more important thing for the moment. I still say, okay, fine. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me and thank you for the wonderful introduction. Um, I'm going to tell you today a little story. We're going to go and look at the latest app coming from the People's Bank of China. And what we're going to talk about is why China's ECNY or digital UN app is topping the charts. And I'm not joking when I say topping the charts, charts, it really is. Now, I have a lot of screenshots from my cell phone and videos from my cell phone. They're all going to go onto that left-hand side uh, from your direction looking at it. So they're going to be squeezed in there. But this is the uh, Apple Store uh, review of China's new digital UN app. And it comes up with a 4.4 um, rating. And it actually topped the charts for about two to three weeks toward the end of January before the Olympics. So um, it, I'm not joking when I say it is a chart topper. And about there are, are so far about a quarter of a billion downloads. Now, hold on a second. The app is geo-locked. In other words, you cannot download and use it unless you are in one of the 12 or 13 cities where the digital UN trial is active. So I live in Shanghai and I downloaded it and I've played with it and I've actually used the digital yuan and we're going to talk about what makes this app great. And the number one thing that makes it great is that you can have multiple accounts on one app. So in a two tier CBD system, we have we have a bank and the and of course the central bank and we have to get our CBDC from the uh, from our commercial bank so we many of us have multiple bank accounts and how do we handle this well what the um, what the app will actually do and this is what we're seeing now here's the opening screen now this is ICBC bank and the next one that I swipe to is my bank 
for the Ant Bank. So what we have is a single app. And on that app, I can add all of my different banks so that each of them has the ability, a single app has the ability to reach all of my banks and I can use ECNY with any of my bank accounts. And that's really fabulous because it doesn't tie you to one single platform. In other words, if I have an ICBC account, I can use the digital want you on with money from there. If I have, as I showed you a, um, a my bank account, I can use money from there. So what really makes this is this concept that your money is fluid. And yes, let me just take this real quickly. The individual banks are going to come out with their own apps. So if you really want to be dedicated to your bank app, go ahead. But this is the PBOC official app now for trials. And it's great because it handles so many different payment systems. Look, this next one is a no brainer. Anybody who is well aware of WeChat Pay and Alipay knows that both of them use QR codes. It's already the standard way of paying for something in China. So again, um, we go back to the app and what we see is that when we go to the main screen, we swipe down to receive money and we can put in how much money we're receiving and we can get another QR code and then the other person will scan that and I'll get their money. Um, and of course, we can swipe up, which is going to come any moment here. There we go. And we're going to swipe up to pay out money. And of course, we've got the barcode and the QR code, which is the same thing that we see in uh, WeChat Pay and Alipay. So the most important thing here is that we're not changing anything. People are already used to QR codes and they can use them. But this is new. And this says scanned, uh, uh, tap to pay. And this is the... Uh, it's already gone by. It's a little fast, maybe. But this is the tap to pay feature, which allows us to both scan things and it allows us to touch one phone to another to make and receive payment without an actual signal. So I don't need to have a mobile network. Um, this is demonstrating the scan uh, feature. And I think we've all seen that enough for now. What's the what's the great design factor number three? Well, that is mobile app transfer. Now, this is subtle and I have to explain it a little bit, but it was very unexpected to me. Most of us already have a banking app on our phone. So I have mostly I use an ICBC account. And of course, I've downloaded the digital UN app on top of uh, which is a separate app on my phone. But what was very unexpected to me is that I can actually go and connect my digital UN app to my mobile app automatically. So what's subtle about this is that what happening in the background is that the ICBC app must have pushed out an API or a tunneling way for the digital UN app to contact it. And these are all of the different bank apps that we're scrolling through. There's about 40 or so apps. And what I can do is I can choose to connect my digital yuan to my bank and it will draw the money out, which is really easy. Now, there's other ways to do this. I can also um, 
put my credit card in or my debit card in, which will connect the two. But this was sort of unexpected. And it shows something important. The amount of detail that goes in to building a CBDC. So as Masaki said, look, it's, it's a big project. So here we're looking at the banks having to change their 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 app on the phone to accept a, a cash request from the from the uh, uh, ECNY app. So um, it was very unexpected, and it works very well. It makes it so that I don't have to do anything to get money because the two apps connect to one another, and it's really neat. You have to log on to your bank app, log on to your digital yuan, and when they're both logged on, the money can go from uh, one to the other. Very nice. Um, now, here's the, um, the sort of the crux of my converse, of our conversation today. It's really important is to recognize that there are four different types of wallets that your phone can have. Now, let me explain. The software is the so is the same for all of them, but how you connect. Uh, it, it remains, it changes just a little bit. So I have the lowest level of digital yuan wallet, and that connects directly through the um, the app, the bank app, as I mentioned. And we're going to come back to this graph in a second. But what we're going to see is that there are three other higher tiers. The next tier, I put my debit card in, and that tier allows me to use more money. And then I have have another uh, tier, which means I put my debit card and certain bank account information in and I get to spend even more money on my digital yuan app. And then the fourth tier, which says you've gone to the bank, you've proven that you are who you are, and you have a tremendously large limit to spend. So what's nice is that there are these four tiers of wallets to suit the user. So nobody has too much digital yuan in their wallet at any one time, which is very valuable. So um, I think I've already gone by that. I'm talking and something and... So we can look at things like the upgrade category. So we can see um, that from the app, I can pick where I want to be. Do I want to upgrade from a tier one wallet to a tier two or to a tier three? Um, and uh, one more. So great design number four. And this is really quite remarkable and was a big surprise to me. And I'm going to make myself get small. And we're going to look at this chart. Each tier of wallet has different amounts of spending attached to it. And we can spend. The interesting part is that we can actually, according to the PBOC, we can actually move an unlimited amount of money on our, on our ECNY app. Now, that should make you surprised. So if I theoretically, if I have uh, the equivalent of $50,000 in my bank account and I want to move it to another bank, I can actually use the digital yuan app to do this provided that I have this high level of clearance from the uh, or, or, or highest category of wallet. Now, the other thing to pay attention to is the category four, and that's all the way on my right side, where it says anonymous, if you can read that on the chart. And what's happening here is that we're able to make anonymous, completely anonymous payments 
and that includes both offline and online to a maximum amount of 2000 RMB for a single transaction, which is around 300 US dollars, um, a daily limit of 5000, which is around 500 and something little bit right dollars oh no about eight hundred dollars excuse me and i have an unlimited uh, uh and the maximum amount i can store on that wallet is um a cap of ten thousand but hold on a second here's the important part you're going to hear this over and over again as central banks decide how much anonymity to give you so on an individual transaction basis what we're looking at is the pboc actually handing out um around $300 for a transaction on a completely anonymous basis. Now, for all of you who have heard that the digital yuan is a disaster, the digital yuan is a spy CBDC, it does nothing but spy on people, I ask you this, how many of you can use a Visa or MasterCard and spend $300, $300 US roughly and not have data brokers, and other fintech companies grabbing your data, being well aware of what you spent. And that's real. So CBDCs are gonna give us this means, and this goes back to the DNA comment that Masoki made. This gives us new control over, our, over who has access to our data and keeps it off of the platforms. Um, so anonymous transfers, we talked about them. And one more thing that's gonna really make the digital yuan a standout are these cards. Now these are little LCD, liquid crystal display cards, and they show the balance. Some of them have a little keypad on them and they're designed for off line transfers. So if I'm in the middle of the mountain somewhere and I have this card, I can receive payment or make payment with no signal. But most importantly, if I'm elderly, if I don't have money for a smartphone, I can still use the digital yuan. These are absolutely critical to financial inclusion in China, in the rural villages. And I think you're gonna see more of these little uh, liquid, uh, liquid crystal display cards um, as, we, as we go forward. Here's one, interestingly enough, QR codes, yes, an LCD display can actually make a QR code so somebody with a smartphone can scan your, your little uh, unconnected card. So there are all of these options that are coming on for inclusion, and these are another, other great reasons why the digital UN app is actually so spectacular. So. In my view, I gave this app a five out of five. Well, you say you're bi I'm biased. I like the digital yuan too much, and that might in fact be true. But um, I think the concept of having an unlimited amount of spending on my digital yuan is really quite breathtaking. I was surprised to see the PBOC did that. Now, just to be clear, this is all new and in trial and the banks themselves have limits how much you can spend. But in theory, eventually the PBOC is going to allow unlimited transfer. Um, it's great because it uses QR codes. The app is wonderful because it allows for you to use multiple banks with one app and because it has this um, uh, concept of mobile app transfer. In other words, one app to the other on my phone. 
But the big question you're asking, and I think this is really valid, is does it offer anything different when compared to WeChat and Alipay? I can use WeChat and Alipay with a QR code, or I can use this. And the answer is yes. It offers this concept of unlimited spending, allowing me to access more and spend larger amounts on my mobile platform. That's just mind blowing. Um, the selectable and the selectable limits are also really big because they can constrain use. If you have a young person and you don't want them to use so much, you can put a limit. You can only give them the small wallet so they can't spend so much. And of course, most importantly is the anonymity feature, meaning that anything below 300 bucks is and completely anonymous and the PBOC doesn't know what you're doing. So those are what I think are the big differentiators compared to WeChat and Alipay that will make the digital yuan have a unique market unto itself. And here's what I'm going to close with, a thought that the digital yuan is designed to go into places where Alipay and WeChat pay cannot meaning it will have unique uses that WeChat Pay and Alipay just simply can't do. So if I had, I mentioned before, if I had $50,000 in a bank account and I wanted to transfer it to another one, I could actually do it with digital yuan. My maximum on WeChat or Alipay is maybe three or 4,000 if my memory is right on that. Um, so again, the digital yuan is designed to go places that WeChat and Alipay cannot. And that's it for me. I think I hit 12 minutes. Marcus will tell me if I did or I didn't. And thank you very much. Connect on LinkedIn and have a look at Cashless, my book. Thank you. Many, many thanks, Richard. It was the perfect timing. So finally, we have Hiromi Yamaoka. So Hiromi, can you please? Uh, thank you very much for giving me uh, such a precious opportunity. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Hiromi Yamaoka, and I'm now chairing the Digital Currency Forum, which consists of over 70 leading banks and companies in Japan. And our forum is trying to promote Japan's digital transformation through utilizing private-issued digital currency. And today's topic is the digital currency and future of monetary system. Indeed, the issues of digital currencies are not limited to the replacement of paper cash with digital ones. Rather, digital currencies could change the fundamental structure of the monetary system. So I'd like to briefly talk about the modern monetary system. It has several important characteristics. It is based on two-tiered or two-layered structure of the central bank and the commercial banks. Each state has one central bank as a single issuer of its sovereign currencies. And the central bank issued two types of base money, which are banknote used by anyone, and a central bank deposit used mainly by banks, commercial banks. And a commercial bank supply deposit and make loans and investment. And this modern monetary system emerged in the 19th century, almost simultaneously at the completion of the establishment of modern nation states. This system based on the central bank self-constraints. The central bank issues banknote to the general public. And since banknote is anonymous, even the central bank cannot trace the holders of banknote. The central bank also provides reserve account, but only to commercial banks. In other words, central bank refrained itself from providing its account to individuals and firms. Instead, it has been commercial bank's job and commercial bank's role to provide payment services to individuals and firms. And this two-layered or two-tiered modern monetary system has many benefits. First, 
since the single currency unit, such as US dollar or Japanese yen, is used in a country, in a single country, so people do not have to worry about extra cost for evaluating and exchanging currencies with different units. And second, commercial banks can use a deposit as a source of lending and investment. Accordingly, the private-based initiatives can be used to achieve efficient resource allocation in the economy. And third, private-based initiatives can be utilized in order to foster innovation. Indeed, many innovations such as ATMs, wire transfers, and debit card were made by private initiatives. And of course, public sectors do not enter into the information data of people's daily transactions. Although the history of the modern monetary system is not wrong, it is from the 19th century. In the 20th century, most countries have adopted this system because of these benefits and advantages. As such, the currency has been based on the balance of nation and the market. The modern currency is supported uh, ultimately by the framework of the nation, including its legal and tax power. But the currency is also the main driving force of the market economy. And due to the innovation of digital technologies, however, there have been challenges to this modern monetary system. For example, the non-bank big tech companies like Alibaba and Tencent in China has entered into digital payment services like uh, Alipay and WeChat Pay, as Richard explained. The international regulatory body, such as FSB, had a great interest in those developments. I worked as a work stream lead as the FSB subgroup on this issue, and Mr. Mu Chanjun, who is now heading the Chinese initiatives, as my colleague at this meeting. And moreover, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies do not use the sovereign currency unit, and Facebook's Libra project was a combination of these challenges. So uh, it has expected to be provided by a big tech company in US and to use its own currency unit. It's a big challenge. So these challenges could shift the balance towards the market side and decentralization. From the authorities' point of view, it seems that the monetary system could become beyond its control. So in this regard, the central bank digital currencies, or CBDC, can be regarded as the authorities' effort to utilize digital technologies in order to maintain their controllability of monetary system. As a background of exploring digital renminbi, the Chinese authorities raise the needs to avoid private companies' oligopoly of monetary systems. They also explain that one of the reasons of exploring digital renminbi uh, is to prevent tax evasion. It means that authority will be able to obtain the information and data if necessary. So in this sense, a CBDC is not simply the digitalization of the banknote. It may change the structure of the ownership of data. So digital media can also be regarded as a part of China's effort to enhance the international presence of renminbi, which is currently not high. So Although all the countries studying CBDC, including China, argue that they continue to issue banknotes and maintain two-tiered systems with the commercial banks, CBDC could also move the balance towards the nation side uh, through, for example, changing two-layer structure into a single layer. It is similar to the issues regarding the traditional economic theory of narrow banking. Indeed, there are many issues regarding CBDC. Will CBDC cause a shift from the bank deposit and distort private-based financial intermediation? Or will CBDC accelerate liquidity crisis in the case of stressed circumstances? Or 
should CBDC be an interest or not? Or should CBDC be used as a tool to realize negative interest rate? There's many issues. But all those issues are connected to possible change in the structure of modern monetary system. A few years ago, I published a working paper uh, on those issues with Professor Yanagawa of the University of Tokyo. So as such, the issues of digital currency and the future of money is closely linked to the various important issues, such as the future of credit creation, future of commercial banking, the future of central banking, and the future of data governance, and the future of market and the nation. Then I'd like to talk about the issues in Japanese payment infrastructure uh, and our initiatives. Japan is a very cash-heavy country. Although Japanese people have a lot of payment cards, people still pay by cash. And Digital Currency Forum was established in 2020 in order to promote Japan's digital transformation through payment digitization. For that purpose, the forum is trying to build the best possible payment infrastructure for Japan. The forum consists of over 70 leading banks and companies in Japan. There's a lots of participants now. The forum already published its progress report and white paper in November 2021. And we are trying to create a private-based digital currency platform with two-tiered structure called DCJPY, which is expected to be issued initially by commercial banks. DCJPY consists of a common area as a first layer, which contains the basic information of value and being used for enhancing their interoperability and the programmable business process layer, and in which each industry will be able to incorporate customized programs, such as smart contract. By incorporating those structures, DCJPY try to satisfy both high interoperability and programmability and to meet sophisticated business needs. And DCJPY has various benefits and advantages. First, since DCJPY is expected to be issued by commercial banks, DCJPY can support private-based financial intermediation. The second, DCJPY can avoid digital bank run. And third, DCJPY may enhance private rate innovation. And fourth, DCJPY can facilitate utilization of data attached to various transactions. And fifth, DCJPY can maintain advantage of two-layered modern monetary system. And our forum is already making various efforts. For example, carbon neutral is becoming a global agenda. So by using smart contract of DCJPY, manufacturers will automatically purchase only the electricity produced without carbon emission. And the liquid of transaction that processed and stored automatically and can be used as evidence showing that these manufacturers produce goods in accordance with the direction of sustainability and carbon neutral. And we have to make an effort to establish the best possible monetary infrastructure based on then available technology. I believe the future monetary system should be on the appropriate balance of the nation market and of the virtual and real world. What we have to do is to design the best possible monetary system when new digital technology became available. Whether we should issue CBDC or not is just a part of this broad task. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Hiromi, for your presentation and also to Masaki and Richard for the really outstanding and, in, and insightful presentations on a very yeah, diverse projects, diverse backgrounds. Um,
yeah, and now I would would ask you again, uh, Masaki, Richard, to and Oriol as well to turn on your cameras again because we are turning to the panel now. And yeah, you now know um, Masaki, Romi, and Richard, but you do not know yet, um, at least for today's event, Oriol. So I would like to introduce you to Oriol um, as well. So Oriol Caudevia is co-leader of the financial inclusion and CBDC working groups at the Global Impact FinTech or GIFT Forum. And he is also chairman of the private digital euro working group at the digital euro um, association so also part of our DEA community also as uh, richard as in DEA expert which we of course appreciate um, a lot and what we will now do is we will use the next uh, 35 minutes to uh, have a panel discussion on just a few aspects around digital money what we can learn in asia for europe um, just to do a, to go a little bit deeper into what the presentations have provided and after this uh, 35 minutes we will turn to a Q&A and here we have seen that you have already asked uh, some questions in Slido which is really great so on YouTube you find in the comment section um, instructions how you can um, ask questions so please feel, feel, feel free to do so and we will respond to the questions um, later on right so let's kick off with the first question. And this goes to um, Oriol. And here the question is, um, we have heard uh, from Hiromi that CBDCs are, for example, one way or seen as one way to ensure monetary sovereignty, right? So in the face of competitors like stable coins, cryptocurrencies, uh, central banks turn to CBDCs. But besides that, why do you think that Asian central banks put such high priority on retail CBDCs? So which chances do Asian central banks see in these retail CBDCs from your perspective? Well, uh, first of all, uh, Jonas, uh, thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure to to share this stage with all those uh, amazing uh, panelists. And well, moving forward to your question, I would say that um, retail CBDCs have many uh, many potential uh, benefits. You know, I mean, in Asia and worldwide. I mean, they may be used to replace uh, physical banknotes. They may be used for monetary policy purposes. For example, when it comes to reducing the lower bound on interest rates. They may be used as, a, as well as a tool to um, improve financial stability. They may be used uh, to fight uh, financial crime more efficiently. And of course, they may be used to uh, promote uh, financial inclusion. And I think that this area of financial inclusion is actually uh, very interesting when it comes to, well, to certain areas in Asia. I mean, when it comes to, to countries like uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and then in Southeast Asia, uh, Indonesia, uh, Philippines, uh, etc. Now, I think in, in those areas, CBDCs can make as well a huge difference. I mean, we cannot forget that um, that according to the World Bank's uh, global Phoenix database, uh, globally 1.7 billion people do not have a bank account, and Southeast Asia, for example, is home to more than 290 million people who are unbanked. So, in that sense, I think that um, that CBDCs have a clear, uh, well, a clear use case uh, in there as well. Um, because the percentage of uh, digital-ready population in Southeast Asia is much higher than the population which has access to, to credit. No? So that's why I think that, um, that uh, this is one area in which uh, CBCs can make a huge uh, difference in Asia and worldwide, leaving aside, of course, all the other benefits that CBCs have, which have been uh, mentioned before, which I mentioned uh, now briefly as well, uh, when it comes as well to the idea of uh, making uh, transactions uh, faster, less costly you know i mean those are general ideas of course that apply uh, like globally but i think there is a side this angle of financial inclusion that we cannot uh, neglect because it can be quite important in asia as well 
Yeah, thanks, thanks, Oriel, and also passing this question to um, to Masaki because you have like, of course, direct insights and are directly involved into um, the Bank of Japan CBC efforts. Maybe building on what Oriel has said, what do you think are like the high priorities and um, yeah, the key chances um, um, which could be see, could be seen in retail CBDCs from your perspective? Yeah, uh, talking of ICA in general, I always support the idea of Oriel that financial inclusion is a prominent motivation for the CBDC introduction. And financial inclusion is cited in the white paper published by the PPOC on its issue project, and also one of the pioneers of the uh, introduction of digital currency, uh, the Central Bank of Cambodia is motivated uh, with the uh, motivation of financial inclusion. And uh, I think in many developing Asian economies, just the remain significant number of unbanked people, as Oriol mentioned. But uh, uh, different from these economies, uh, financial inclusion is, to be honest, less significant agenda in Japan. Almost all adults have bank accounts, and the non-bank payment services are readily available for many people. However, uh, all overall motivation for CBDC I touched upon in my pre initial presentation, uh, continued access to the public money and enhancement of uh, domestic interoperability and uh, further digitalization while maintaining competitive market are uh, all relevant to the retail market. So that's why uh, we devote significant resources in general purpose CBDC works. But in addition, uh, we're also interested in wholesale CBDC. Uh, although we are not working on specific project on C wholesale CBDC, at this moment, we recognize its potential to enhance the efficiency and safety of the uh, wholesale market and continuing our internal study. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for these insights and also bringing a host of CBDCs here um, in this debate, because I think this is also a very interesting um, topic here. And next, uh, turning to, to, to Richard, um, you really um, well explained like what's currently going on with regard to the Chinese CBDC project, right? So um, you have presented the app, and which is really, really interesting and also um, nice to see how the PBOC does things in terms of CBDCs. And what would you say, Richard, what can Europe like learn from this CBDC efforts like from China, but also like more general from Asian CBDC projects? Yeah, with, let's make it very clear. China's digital yuan is like a roadmap for the West. So um, when you really look at what China did, they basically put together a CBDC for a very large country. And the decisions that they made along the way are not unique. They're going to be the same decisions that many other countries will make. Now, I'm not saying that all the CBDCs are going to be copies of China. That's obviously not where I'm going. But many of the top level decisions, do you make it single tier? Do you make it two tier? Do you have interest rates on your coins? You know, there are a lot of um, details that China spent from 2014 to present researching and trying to understand how they can do this. And I always like to say this, they wanted to launch their CBDC without blowing up the banking system, because that's really what it's about. Um, so um, my take is that um, the West can learn a lot 
from China and the design decisions they made, there will be many, there will also be design decisions that they don't like and that they don't want to use. It'll be, it'll go both ways. Let me make that clear. But I think it's a roadmap. It's pointing a direction. Uh, as I say, China is a decade ahead and they are providing a map for everybody else to follow. Here's the part. If we don't get crushed by political issues with China, and we remain open to some of the technological innovations coming out of China that are really spectacular. Yeah, thanks, Richard. I really like this comparison or when you say a roadmap, right? Because this is kind of what it is. And I mean, China really started these efforts very, very early. And if we compare this with the ECB, we see that they, they are a few years ahead, you know? So the questions the Chinese central bank officials obviously asked uh, themselves a few years ago are kind of now or maybe in the near future popping up. Um, so this I have to, I have to make a I have to make a, a second really brief one. Ready? Yeah. The Federal Reserve just came out with a paper about a month ago, a month and a half, right? And they asked people all of these questions about CBDC. And when I read the questions, I laughed. I said, hey, China answered those seven or eight years ago. This is not new. You should be reading the Chinese research on it. They're, you know, it's not, the systems are more similar than you'd imagine. Anyway, I don't, I don't mean to... Uh, to no, but in, in, uh, take up too much time. Interesting comment, Richard. Yeah, and 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 I, and I agree. There's definitely a different speed, you know, in terms of a, a geographic reach. And um, but maybe also uh, bringing um, Hiromi in um, into this panel discussion, as you're also very deeply involved into into these projects, right? Also with your own um, more private sector project, but also following the CBDC efforts uh, quite intensively. What what do you what would you say? What do you think that Europe can can learn from some CBDC initiatives in Asia? Um, mm -hmm. that, that we already have, have, for example, talked about. Yeah, I think on that issue, I think that mutual understanding is important. And uh, of course, Asia also have to learn a lot, a lot from Europe. And uh, one of the special features is that the, some Asian countries, including China, have big tech companies like Alibaba or Tencent or uh, Grab or Gojek in Southwest Asia. And on the other hand, in Europe, there is no such big tech companies and Euro is already a key currency of the world. And some CBDC efforts in Asia reflect authorities' intention to reduce the power of big techs or their willingness to promote their own currencies. So Europe might be able to learn how these differences could affect each nation's stance towards CBDC. And also, Europe has a firm stance on the protection of data and privacy, and uh, which is shown in uh, GDPR, for example. Now, on the other hand, China told that one of the purposes of developing CBDC is to prevent tax evasion. So it means that authorities uh, would become able to obtain the information data if necessary. So as such, it would be interesting to see how the differences in terms of the policies on data and privacy could affect the development of CBDC. So of course, no one can say which is better. So I believe developed countries should keep its precious value of, for example, privacy and basic human rights and try to establish the best possible infrastructure which can coexist and with democracy and human rights. And then we keep in mind that the technology would be very important. So we would be careful who would obtain or occupy the technology which would be used in the CBDC in the future. Thank you. 
Yeah, th thank you very much. Again, another interesting perspective also when it comes to competition, the role of uh, or role of big, big techs in this context. And from all your responses, uh, like mainly Richard and Hiromi, you also talked about some design elements, right? And also Masaki in the presentation, um, like what, what the CBDC should offer, so like security, interoperability, um, etc. Maybe here, kind of adding bullets to to, to list in this question it goes to all of you. So whoever wants to respond first, and please go ahead. What do you think? Which design elements that we currently see in in, in China? And Richard, you said some will be um, similar, right? As in, as in China, some are not. Which design elements from Asian CBDC projects do you think should also be kind of transferred and looked at um, from a European perspective? So where are these um, dimensions or these projects kind of overlap in terms of design um, dimensions? So a question to anybody. Yeah, this is Masaki, I'll take that question. And uh, actually most of the observations that Yamaoka-san presented are those of mine. And actually the BOJ and the ECB has a long tradition of mutual relationship. And actually when I was young, I was seconded to the BOJ rep office in Frankfurt and closely communicated with the colleagues of the European Central Bank. And uh, on our CBDC works, we are leveraging this tradition and we cross-ray communicate to each other and learn to each other uh, bilateral basis. And uh, in addition to such bilateral communications, we are a member of uh, many international forums, including, for example, CBDC coalition supported by the Bank for International Settlements and G7 process and also in G20 process. And through these interactions with the colleagues of the European Central Bank or the European Commission, I find three major commonalities uh, between these three jurisdictions. And the first one is common social value. I mean, uh, both of us respect democracy and the fundamental human rights and rule of law. And therefore, privacy, for example, is a critical design element of CBDC in both jurisdictions as the affirmed uh, the G7 greater CBDC principles. And the second point is similarity in the structure of a financial system. In Japan, as is also the case in many EU jurisdictions, uh, credit intermediation by commercial banks plays a significant role. Therefore, uh, we would need both of uh, us, uh, the Bank of Japan and the ECB, should carefully consider on possible adverse effect of CBDC introduction on uh, bank funding and therefore uh, considerations or exploration of a possible safeguards uh, for the uh, CBDC uh, would be critical. And finally, we both have market fragmentation. Uh, while in EU, market fragmentation is in a sense a legacy of the history where national retail payment systems have developed in each state. But on the other hand, as I mentioned, we also face a fragmentation of the retail payments market. So interoperability is a critical factor to address this issue, both in the EU and as well as in Japan. I'll stop here, thank you. Thank you very much. I think interoperability is really key. We will also follow on this, uh, this topic in the course of the year within our Digital Euro Association. Um, but maybe also letting the other great panelists um, respond. Do you think there are other design dimensions that um, the ECB in Europe should look at 
coming from the perspective of, of Asian projects and your insights into Asian CBDC projects? Well, I can go next. I'm sure that Richard will be able to elaborate on this uh, much more, but I think that um, there are two elements from the digital yuan that I find very interesting uh, design-wise, and those are uh, its transaction speed, it's very fast, and then also the ability, the idea of uh, allowing a dual offline payments. I think that those two um, features are uh, especially relevant, and as I said before, I'm sure that Richard can elaborate much more on this, but yeah, I would um, remark those two. Yeah, yeah, and Richard, you wanted to, to add something. I'm going to take it a different direction, but Claudia, I, Ariel, I couldn't agree more. Digital offline payment is going to be critical, not just for China's CBDC, but for those in many developing countries. And because China is still a developing country with many rural areas where people don't have signal, they're going to perfect that technology. And I think it, that part will be exported. But I want to tell you something. I want to talk very briefly about what shouldn't be exported. All right. Now, the battle for CBDC in the EU and in the US is one of privacy. You can already see the articles in the journals saying that this is the death of freedom if we use CBDC. And the fear is that the government will control and understand all of your payment. So if we look at the system that most CBDCs use, they have essentially one set of computers that does the processing, and they have another set of computers that has the KYC and the names. And what we need to do is we need to play who holds the name game. And that really means that, so if you look at China's CBDC, the government holds the names and it holds the processing power. Yes, you need a court ordered warrant to put them together, meaning you can't identify unless you have a court warrant, but it's still the government that controls both. It's a great design and it's actually excellent for financial inclusion. But in the EU and in the US, we're gonna have to change it. It will need to be banks or other third party organizations that hold on to the naming data so that the government cannot say we have both. So there's going to have to be this separation of, of processing, kind of like Bitcoin hashing and unhashing that happens on the on the central bank servers. But then the names they all have to be kept by separate third parties. And that's going to be the key to maintaining that privacy and the government being able to say, we don't know who you are because we don't have the data. And that's the only way they're going to break through this privacy issue. Now, one comment about this, it's bad for inclusion because you still have the banks in the loop. But I don't see any other way to get around this for now. But that's that's what we shouldn't include. And I think that's going to be an important design element for EU and US. Yeah, and it's good not to talk about what to include, but also what not to include. Um, and Hiromi, yeah, please, uh, please feel free, uh, feel free to okay, add. Uh, some practical issues. And uh, for example, the, uh, uh, compared to Europe, uh, China is a bit centralized country and with a higher interest rate. But still, 
China argued that if central bank, uh, if central bank digital currency is issued, it will be issued indirectly through commercial banks and payment service providers without bearing any interest. So if CBDC is issued also in Europe, and the digital euro will have to follow this way in this respect because the interest rate is lower and it's a, a bit decentralized. And in terms of the offline payment, it has a very delicate issues. In Europe, there's a less urgent needs for financial inclusion and a more anxiety about the MLCFT. So it will may, may have other factors to be considered, in, especially in Europe. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I think we really tackled most of the, the relevant design principles I, I also had in mind and decide features. And I, I would like for, for like one, one last question about the CBDC part before we also talk about stable coins, et cetera, and which go, would go again to you, Richard, and because you also tackled, already tackled the aspect of privacy, right? And we also had one question from our audience was like, um, kind of like that you said that the, Ch the Chinese ECNY is like anonymous, at least at this one tier, you know? So I think it was the fourth uh, category, but as far as I understand, this is kind of linked to the, to the mobile phone number. And here the, the question was also like, how can this be fully anonymous? Because if you like link this to the mobile phone number, you know who the person, you, you can't find out who the person is maybe because also um, you need, if you buy a phone, you need, I'm not sure how this is in China, but that's how it is in Europe. If you buy a, a new phone, a new SIM card, you have to provide your ID. Um, so maybe asking this question, is this real full privacy? Um, or, or, yeah, you talked about this bringing the two data. It's, it's, it's really easy. China has new data policy laws that are not, that are far more rigorous than GDPR in the EU. And basically what these data laws say is that the Chinese government cannot go to the cell phone provider and simply figure out who you are. Again, they need a warrant in order to be able to find out who uh, who belongs to what phone number. So that's number one. Now, the other one that's really funny, though, is that these little cards are very low cost. So they're going to be go there. You know, while they technically are registered to a phone number, dad can buy one card for each kid. Right. And, you know, so believe me, within a year or two, there are going to be millions of these little cards going around and nobody's going to know who belongs to what. That's just going to be a practical reality of living in China, because that's that's what happens here. But the fundamental thing is that um, we do have very strict data privacy laws here and the PBOC or the government can't just go into the telephone records to find out. Okay. Uh, thanks for clarifying this, Richard, because this is really interesting and I think uh, missing in the public debate as, right, right, as well, right? Because it's often said that like this is the way, you know, for um, for be really uh, transparent, you know, also getting now access to financial data easily also for, for the public sector, let's say. But um, as these laws uh, are in place, this is obviously not, not the case that, that easily, you know, and as you said, probably even, even tougher as in some other uh, countries as well. Um, what I would like, like to add here, and this is building on your previous response, Richard, that you said we should not copy this privacy like one-to-one -one because also we have to have this in different infrastructures, right? So maybe banks having this one kind of transaction data and you know that this cannot, cannot be matched as well. What I think is also quite interesting, and this is where, where I personally did also some research on and we, we presented this to central banks, is like um, a privacy by design approach where you do not even store this personal data, you know? So where you just 
uh, basically store hashes. You can use some cryptographic magic here, the zero knowledge proofs, etc. Which um, I just wanted to add is a different uh, yeah idea to not even store the data on the first place. But yeah, absolutely. It's look. That's you know zero knowledge proofs are the are the holy grail. We're all looking to them to ensure long term privacy. No argument. That's great technology, and yeah. it's coming. Yeah, just just wanted to add uh, add this. Yeah, great. Perfect. So now we we talked um, we talked a little bit more in detail about CBDC and a public sector money. And now I would also like to turn to private sector money, um, stable coins, for example, because this is what we see here in in Europe. Mainly, to be honest, in the US, where lots of dynamic is going on. Right. If you look at trading volumes, market capitalization, valuation of companies, it's it kind of seems to be going crazy here. Um, and here, my first question would be to um, Hiromi, because we see that besides CBDC, there are other interesting efforts going on in Asia about these, let's call them novel forms of money issued by the private sector, such as stable coins. Mm -hmm. And you just explained in your presentation the project uh -huh. and you are also involved in, right? So here, I would, I would like to ask you, will CBDCs and stable coins like coexist or do you think like one of the two forms will um, mm -hmm. like, let's see, succeed or um, yeah. Yeah, I think we can coexist. Yeah, it's related to the famous debate on the narrow banking in the economic field. And of uh, course, uh, the CBDC will definitely need private sector initiatives. Now, all the central banks studying CBDC explains that CBDC will be issued indirectly through private entities, and private initiatives should play a leading role in innovation. So it is very unlikely that the central bank updates the APPs every year or embed various programs to satisfy each industry's needs or do aimless CFT by themselves. So, for example, in the case of DCJPY, we are very happy if the function of our first layer, the common field, will be operated uh, eventually by the CBDC or the central bank. So regardless of whether the first layer will be operated by private entities or central banks, the second layer which consists of smart contract or programmable field will remain as a private sector job. So I believe we can coexist. Thank you very much. And this also um, kind of went into the direction which use cases you can use, right? So basically everything um, related to, to smart contracts that could also be governed like by the private sector, not yes. by the public yes. sector. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe Oriel, do you also have, um, have some thoughts you would like to add here? Sure. Uh, basically, I fully concur with uh, Hiromi. Uh, everything he said seems um, spot on to me. I fully agree. I mean, I feel as well that um, CBDCs and stable coins will coexist. Uh, I mean, there is a potential for that. I mean, even the, the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell admitted that. He said that privately issued stable coins uh, could coexist alongside uh, CBDCs. And this is actually what most experts are, are saying. And well, in this area, you mentioned uh, before the DC uh, JPY uh, project, but uh, I was reading this morning, for example, about the Australian bank uh, ANC, which uh, will become the first uh, bank in the world to mean an Australian dollar based stablecoin, which is important because, as you all know, uh, thus far, most uh, stablecoins are pegged to the US dollar. So I think we are, we are going to start seeing many more stablecoins uh, pegged to other currencies, to, to the euro, um, I mean, to Canadian or too many more, no? So I think um, stable coins will, will thrive in the same way that uh, CBDC projects will move forward as well. No? I mean, to what extent they will coexist? Uh, once again, it will depend on each country's uh, regulations and, and, well, and, and purposes. I mean, uh, in some countries, they may 
they may decide to, to promote their CBDC whilst uh, being much more uh, tough against any kind of crypto, including stable coins. But I would say that in general, I see, I foresee this uh, scenario of coexistence. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And maybe also going a little bit deeper into the use cases. And again, a question to, to, to all of you. Um, I mean, CBDC is often mainly seen as kind of the, the, the form of money, the, the, the means of payment you can use later on in the digital world, right? So the main use case is to be, to be used as a, as a unit of, of or means of exchange. Also, at, like as a store of value, right? Depending on the design, are there limits? Are there not limits? But in theory would be the case. What, what do you think, where, where, where would stable coins come in? So Hiromi, you mentioned that this is about like smart contract technology, you know, but um, again, question to all of you, which primarily, primarily use cases would you have in mind for these stable coins or private sector forms of money in contrast to CBDC? So where would they provide a value added to um, CBDC use cases? What do you think? For example, the money and data are becoming closer to each other. And it is quite uh, difficult for the CBDC to obtain all the information data attached to the transaction. But in terms of the private-based uh, payment instrument, it is possible to utilize the data attached to the transaction. And for example, by using a smart contract, we can uh, create a DBP situation, DBP circumstances, with uh, not only for the securities, but also uh, many goods and services. For example, by using a smart contract, the manufacturing companies can rationalize the procedure for, uh, the, for the cash management as well as the product management. And uh, for example, accumulate the data, which is necessary to, for example, uh, show that their product lines are in line with the sustainability of the, of the earth or uh, reduce uh, some of the risk associated with the transaction. So by utilizing the, for utilizing data, I think that private sector money may have some benefit also in the future. This is my sense. Thank you very much, um, Hiromi here. Uh, anything to add from, from the others? Are you all, do you all agree here? Okay, that's, that's even better. Look, than that. Yeah, Richard. Look, Hiromi, Hiromi just nailed it. It was perfect. And I wanna, so let's take what Hiromi said about the data control. And let's look at how China, because China is a model. We've got WeChat Pay, we've got Alipay, we've got central bank digital currency. They're all going to coexist. For a moment, think about WeChat Pay and Alipay as stable coins. They're corporate issued money. How they work behind doesn't matter. But what you're seeing is that these corporate issued coins, oh, if you come to our store and you use this corporate issued coin, you get a discount. If you come to our online sales platform and you use our stable coin and you spend more than $1,000, you get cash back. All of these points programs, mileage programs, all of these corporate uh reward programs, they all desperately want your data. So here's the irony, ready? Here's the irony of this all. People are screaming, digital currency, central bank digital currency, it's a data disaster. In fact, central bank digital currencies are highly protective of your data. 
So those who don't want to use CBDC are free to use stable coins. Be my guest, but be aware that your data is better protected by the government than it is by, by a private corporation who has every incentive to monetize your payment data. So, but you know, and that's exactly what WeChat and Alipay do. And I'm happy to let them monetize my data because they provide platforms. They're great. So people will use stable coins. People will use CBDC. They're all going to be happy. Yeah, that's right. The debate on the currency will be closer linked to the ownership of the data, the style of the nation as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. But it's really, it. oh. it's, it's really interesting to see that uh, you also agree that like data privacy and is like kind of the core, right? And also a, a differentiation between who to trust with data privacy, right? So this is the, the public sector. There are surveys in Europe, in Europe indicating, for example, that you both trust the central bank, you know? That's really uh, interesting and fits well here. I have to make a comment. Wait Go for ahead. it for a second. Think about the insanity. We live in a world obsessed with GDPR and data privacy. And meanwhile, we have a population willingly saying, I want to use private money. Thinking that somehow private money will be data and privacy secure. Are you kidding me? What do you think they're going to do? What do you think they're going to do with this with the data they get? They're going to yeah. monetize it. But I'll stop there. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Richard, for for adding this. So I, I really, I really, really like this discussion and I could continue talking to you for hours, I guess. Um, let's now um, look looking at the time turn to the, the Q&A part. So first, uh, thanks for for responding um, to, 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 to my questions here. Um, and now I would like to do is, um, for the next 15 minutes, I would like to share my a screen and what you do see uh, here is basically um, this slido tool we just presented in the beginning so what i would now ask you dear audience go to this uh, to slido so you can either scan the qr code here or you can go to slido.com and um, insert the code here um, as well and then, then you can type in your questions and it's really great to see that so many people have asked questions it's really a lot so unfortunately we cannot respond to everybody but to every question, but besides asking the question, please also feel free to upvote the question because this makes life easier for us to decide on which question we definitely should talk about and we cannot miss and some questions um, that we maybe have to postpone for um, another time. And also indicate if this is to a particular expert, please indicate also the name so that we know um, who to turn this question to. Great. So let's let's start with the first question um, on top. And I think this is a question to everybody. And here it asks, is a retail CBDC conditional to innovate private commercial bank money, for example, by tokenization? So whoever wants to jump on this, please feel free to do so. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's a necessary condition. Uh, it's a, a lot of debate, especially in the US, and it is still possible for uh, how to, for the commercial bank to innovate their own money. And only the difference is that the, uh, the uh, CBDC is a liability of the central bank. So there's no credit cost. And uh, but uh, uh, on the other hand, the commercial bank money is a private liability. So there would be some uh, some uh, credit risks. But uh, at the same time, there's a lots of other kind of initiatives such as uh, deposit insurance or bank regulation to make a safeguard on the private sector deposit. So I don't think it's a necessary condition. It's up to the situation of each country. Thank you. Thank you very much, Romy. 
turning to the next question, and I think this is a really interesting one. Um, as the examples discussed are all retail CBDCs, what is their acceptance observed in China and or expected in, Ch in Japan or other um, Asian countries by the general public? Um, yeah, again, question to, to, to uh, anybody who wants to respond. Uh, well, I can start. Uh, I think that it's going to depend on each country. I mean, each country has like different habits, you know, their citizens. Uh, for example, when it comes to China, uh, Chinese people are very used to paying uh, using a digital uh, means of payment. I mean, it's what Richard said before, no? I mean, Alipay, WeChat Pay. So I guess in there it's going to, to be kind of easier to see a wide acceptance of the digital yuan. For example, right now we saw in February that um, when it comes to the amount of transactions, uh, digital yuan beat out uh, Visa in, the, in Beijing in the in the Winter Olympics. Uh, when it comes to the other countries, it's going to depend. Uh, for example, uh, I mean, certain countries in Asia, people are still much more reliant on, on paying using cash. So in those countries, it might be, well, maybe uh, a bit more difficult, or maybe it will take a little bit longer for us to see like uh, such a wide acceptance, you know, uh, compared, for example, to China. So I guess it's going to depend. Maybe also, yeah, Masako. Yeah. Yeah, to be honest, at this moment in Japan, our CBDC projects are not well known by the general public. Uh, every year, uh, we, the Bank of Japan carries out a survey on various issues around the BOJ's operations and monetary policies, but uh, the answers to the question, uh, whether do you know uh, CBDC or not, was a uh, surprising role. I have not even imagined it. But, uh, on on uh, top of that, I think if we are to issue on CBDC, a sufficient adoption by the general public is really important because uh, to uh, achieve our policy goals with the introduction of CBDC, like let's say uh, the uh, supplement in cash or interoperability or uh, enhancement or promotion of innovation, a sufficient level by the general public uh, is really important. So uh, we should consider uh, possible use cases uh, for the CBDC and we should carefully design that are acceptable uh, by the general public. And to do that, I think it is important to communicate with various stakeholders and also with the general public. Uh, for that purpose, uh, we are hosting uh, number of forums, including, for example, uh, liaison and coordination committee on the CBDC, uh, which we invite uh, the uh, representatives from the financial industries and also uh, from the government agencies. And also, uh, occasionally, uh, we host the Future of Payments Forum, where uh, we invite the tech experts uh, not limited to the those of financial institutions, but also uh, from various uh, companies, including uh, business enterprises. Thank you. Thank you very much for your comments here. And I'm, I really hope that we will see more and more data on all the CBDCs live out there, right? Also the ECNY to, to see how adoption is. And then maybe also as Richard said, to see this as, as a roadmap and see also what does this mean for, for other characteristics like the Euro area. Real quickly, I wanna say one thing about ECNY use because it's been reported over and over that ECNY is not doing well because usage is low. In fact, the usage is very low. 
Remember, ECNY is in trial. I live in Shanghai. My ECNY wallet has money on it. I can't spend it because the stores don't accept it yet. Yep. So it's still trial. So don't think that because the reported numbers for ECNY use are low, that it's a failure. That's just insane. But I have read this already. One more thing, Southeast Asia, not Japan, please not Japan. Digital products are seen as aspirational by poorer populations because they give them access to products and services that they never had before. So when you look at Thailand, when you look at Indonesia, when you look at my, uh, my, uh, 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 Malaysia, these are countries that once the once you say we have a new digital product, People rush to it. They love it because they think that it is the key to a better life to them. And you don't see that in the Europe. You don't see that in the United States. Nobody cares. We think, why bother with this new digital product? It is a uniquely Southeast Asian sort of mentality. Yeah, thanks for, for sharing these insights because that's very different compared to, to the Euro area and some uh, some countries, uh, yeah, closer to where, where I live. Yeah, Hiromi, something to add? Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a very famous debate on the, to what extent CBDC should become attractive. And uh, yeah, there's a famous uh, yeah, speech made by the ECB guys and uh, the CBDC should, should not be too strong. Rich people love CBDC, less than the bank deposit the central bank's balance sheet would become inflated. How are they going to do that? Because uh, central banks are not in a good position to provide loans and investment. It should be the private sector job. So it's quite important to strike the appropriate balance, not too attractive, but <laughs> uh, uh, to some extent. Thank you. Yeah, yeah this is Masaki, uh, one for a comment. Uh, as Yamaoka-san mentioned, uh, I agree, CBDC uh, should not be too strong or CBCD should be somewhat inconvenient uh, compared with other means of payment. But uh, I think it is particularly uh, important with relevant to the currency function as a store of value because uh, CBDC uh, does not have a, a credit creation function and uh, uh, excessive use of uh, CBDC uh, as a store of value uh, could impair the sound function of the uh, financial system. And uh, on top of that, uh, I'd like to make another uh, follow-up comment to uh, Richard's point. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, sufficient adoption uh, by the general public uh, as a means of payment would be critical to achieve the policy goals of CBDC protection. And uh, in pursuing that, uh, I think both acceptance uh, from consumers and also uh, from retailers or merchants, it's critical. And uh, relating this point, uh, I think one of the attractive feature uh, of the CBDC could be finality, payment finality, uh, that is almost inherent to the CBDC uh, by its concept. Um, now, uh, a number of uh, retailers in Japan are uh, introducing digital payment solutions uh, provided by uh, non banks, banks, or card companies, but uh, uh, most of these uh, non uh, digital payments, uh, in case of uh, digital, digital, digital payments, uh, revenues are uh, not 
paid to the merchant instantly, rather uh, they're uh, paid to the merchants, for example, uh, once in a month or twice in a month. So, uh, and also uh, merchants are charged for a certain level of interchange fees. Of course, uh, we have not made any decision on the fee structure or funding model of CBDC, but uh, if the uh, fees uh, for CBDC acceptance at merchants are uh, more attractive than uh, in the cases of uh, acceptance of other digital payments, I think uh, that could support the adoption of a CBDC by merchants. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, th thank you very much for all your great insights on the adoption topic, as this is really a, a crucial topic about these uh, these projects. I think this was really important to, to go also in, in deep dive to this question. So thank you very much for sharing your insights. Um, looking at the time, let's maybe turn to the last question for today. So really thanks for everybody to submitting all the questions. I think we should host another event soon to respond to the others. Um, and let's pick the, the, the question on top here about Hong Kong, because we haven't talked about Hong Kong um, yet today. And here the question is, in Hong Kong, do you think that the Hong Kong um, Monetary Authority regulator will issue some sort of CBDC in 2023, 2024? And how are these different from payment platforms like Alipay? So again, the question to, to everybody, and please um, kind of respond um, yeah, quickly due to time. Thank you very much. I, I can take that one as well. Um, when it comes to, to Alipay, I think that uh, Richard uh, pretty much uh, covered that part uh, before. So I'm going to focus on the first uh, question. And basically, um, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, HKMA, which is Hong Kong's de facto central bank, is currently working on three CBDC projects, uh, one of them being the cross-border tests of China's digital yuan, the ECNY. So I'm going to, to skip that part. And then um, Hong Kong is also working on the EHKD, Electronic Hong Kong Dollar, as well as the EMCBDC Bridge. The MCBDC Bridge is a wholesale CBDC project which involves not just the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, but also the People's Bank of China, the Central Bank of Thailand, and the Central Bank of the United Arab Emirates. And this uh, project is not um, completed yet. It's been there for a few years. Actually, it was initially known as Project Intanon Lion Rock. And it only encompassed the central banks of Thailand and Hong Kong initially, but then it was extended to include as well uh, mainland China and the United Arab Emirates. So it's still a work in progress, but a very interesting um, project. And then um, last but not least, there is this uh, EHKD project, you know, the third one, the, the last one that came, uh, basically it was announced last uh, June. Uh, through a report published by the uh, HKMA. And the idea is precisely that one. No, I mean, a retail CBDC in Hong Kong, um, a retail Hong Kong dollar, but uh, electronically. There is no timeline yet for, for this uh, electronic Hong Kong dollar, so we need to wait. I mean, uh, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority noted um, last year that uh, further legal and policy frameworks will need to be designed to back any decision to launch this CBDC or not. So this is why um, going back to this question, um, I mean, I do not expect any CBDC launch in Hong Kong in 2023 or 24. Um, but bear in mind, of course, that the only like uh, domestic CBDC project in Hong Kong is the EHKD project. Now, the other ones involve either the digital yuan or MCBDC bridge. Great, then thank you very much for elaborating here on this question, um, Oriol. And 
yeah, I, I just, just just thank you about the participation. So it was really a very, very insightful event also with experts from different sectors, different fields with different insights. 